It's Friday, February 11th, 2022. And from the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, this is Pennsylvania Legacies. I'm Josh Rollerson. People get involved in environmental work for all kinds of reasons. For most of us, it's an expression of our most deeply held values. And for many, those values are rooted in religious belief. The moral connection to what we believe as spiritual people and what we feel we are put on this earth to do and why we do what we do in terms of caring for the earth, because it is a manifestation of love for one another. And that, you know, I think resonates with even non-religious people. The Chesapeake Bay region is home to more than 19,000 religious communities. One organization is working to rally all of those believers around a mission to protect and restore the watershed they share. We'll learn how coming up after this news update from Lily Jones. Last week, Governor Wolf announced $450 million American Rescue Plan dollars should be used to invest in conservation and recreation in Pennsylvania. He proposed new funding for Growing Greener, a program that involves state funds to support a wide variety of environmental, recreation, agriculture, and community projects. This announcement came just a week before the governor's final budget address on Tuesday, when he discussed further investment in Pennsylvania's future. No longer digging out of a hole. We're ready to build. And this year's budget does exactly that making new investments that will build a stronger and brighter future. The governor's proposal is similar to several bipartisan bills in the General Assembly that would also utilize federal dollars to reinvigorate Growing Greener, which hasn't seen new revenue investments in a decade. The proposed budget also included proposals for using Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act funding to support conservation and energy projects, including increasing DEP and DCNR staff and giving assistance to small and disadvantaged communities. The Wolf administration is taking legal action to compel final publication of a Department of Environmental Protection rulemaking that will enable Pennsylvania to link with the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative. The suit, filed last week in Commonwealth Court, claims the Legislative Reference Bureau improperly failed to publish the final REGI regulations in the Pennsylvania Bulletin, the last step in the rulemaking process. Governor Wolf vetoed a concurrent resolution in January that would have blocked Pennsylvania's entrance into REGI. The administration says that, pursuant to existing state law, the period during which the legislature could block the rulemaking had expired, and that the Legislative Reference Bureau does not have the authority to withhold publication of a regulation that has been approved through all required channels. In the lawsuit, DEP argues that Pennsylvania is losing out on millions in reggie proceeds and associated air pollution reductions because of the delay. The Great Backyard Bird Count begins on February 18th and runs through the 22nd. This is the 25th year of the popular citizen science project run by the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, National Audubon Society, and Birds Canada. To participate, decide on a birdwatching location and spend at least 15 minutes counting all the birds you see or hear. More information on how to participate and record your data can be found on birdcount.org. Stormwater management is one of the big infrastructural challenges facing Philadelphia and many other urban and suburban areas. Too much rain in the wrong place can lead to flooding, sewer overflows, and other environmental and safety hazards downstream. Green stormwater infrastructure is one way to help ease the impact by letting rain gradually infiltrate into the ground where it falls, rather than rushing into nearby streams. A rain garden here, a bioswale there, can make a big difference, if you do it right. So in one important sense, stormwater management is really land management. That's why Peck and our partners in the Delaware River Watershed Initiative work closely with landowners to install these kinds of features wherever we think they could help. 
Many such properties are residential and no backyards too small to make a difference if it's in the right spot. But from an efficiency standpoint, large properties tend to deliver the most bang for buck. Typically, these are corporate, institutional, or government-owned properties. And in suburban areas, like those through which the Delaware's local tributaries flow on their way to Philly, some of the largest chunks of land out there are owned by religious organizations. Churches, mosques, synagogues, and houses of worship can be wonderful partners in watershed work. Not just by virtue of the acres they control, but because environmental stewardship aligns with their spiritual mission and values. Interfaith Partners for the Chesapeake operates on this principle, working with faith communities in Maryland, Pennsylvania, and Washington, D.C. to improve the health of the Chesapeake Bay watershed. Jody Rose is IPC's executive director. She was one of the speakers in a series of webinars on this subject that Peck hosted late last year. And today she's our guest on Pennsylvania Legacies. Jody, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much, Josh. I really appreciate being here. Let's start with some background on uh, Interfaith Partners for the Chesapeake. How did this organization come about? Who are the partners and what kind of work do you do? Right. So Interfaith Partners for the Chesapeake or IPC, um, we work with congregations of any faith to engage them in caring for creation, which is the entire web of life integrated with each other, you know, plants and animals, water and lands. Um, it sprung out of a volunteer effort back in the mid 2000s or so, a group of Presbyterians outside of Baltimore had attended a National Council of Churches um, Holy Waters Conference. And as they were driving back to their home in Baltimore, they were saying to each other, why are we not talking about the Chesapeake in church? And so they began to you know, challenge themselves and challenge other um, Presbyterians is where it began. And then from there, other groups um, to really uh, you know, begin to bring this voice to the faith institutions. And over the years, it evolved into non-Christian groups as well. Um, and then in 2013, it was renamed into Interfaith Partners for the Chesapeake. Um, since that time, I mean, now we, we have worked with over 300 congregations throughout Maryland and DC and um, parts of Pennsylvania uh, to engage them in teaching their members as well as taking action on their properties uh, to restore God's creation. So I'm going to hit you with a big one. Why is water such a big deal to people of faith? Why does it figure so importantly in so many faith traditions around the world? Right. Okay, so yes, full disclosure, not a theologian whatsoever. My dad did study to be a Catholic priest, but ended up uh, raising a family of eight. So, you know, water is actually in so many different religious spiritual practices. And it in the, uh, you know, in the Christian Bible, it's all over the place. In the Hebrew Bible, it's, you know, in the Quran, water is listed in these sacred texts over and over. I mean, um, a United Methodist pastor once said to me, whenever water is in the Bible, God is doing something really special. And I, that's always stuck with me. Um, I, you know, I think the other thing, though, about water that transcends beyond people who consider themselves religious is it connects us all to each other. Um, you can touch it. You can smell it. You can see what's in it, you know, you can judge whether or not it's clean by sight. Um, 
there's just something really tangible about that. So even though it is a massive, you know, presence, it is, it's a, you know, it's an actionable thing. It can be in your backyard. It's running down your driveway. It's falling on your face. And it's 90% of your body mass, right? That's right. So, you know, it's, there's this wonderful quote from Wendell Berry. I'm sure you've heard of it. Do unto those downstream as you'd have those upstream do unto you. And we've been using that quote for almost a decade. Um, and it usually gets a chuckle from people when they understand it, or it gets like, a, you know, a confused look when they don't know what a watershed is. So it's a perfect statement to begin to explain people how we are connected to each other and how the things that we do really do affect people downstream of us. Going beyond symbolic um, theological resonance with water, what more broadly are some of the values and motivations that people you know, from a, a religious or faith background bring to this kind of work? What leads them to or calls them to environmental stewardship and advocacy? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a lot because everybody's different. And I can speak about you know, what we believe as a board and a staff and as an organization, uh, we believe fundamentally we are all called to love one another. And one of the ways we do that is by uh, caring or maybe not caring, you know, uh, for the world around us. So, you know, the things that we do in this shared home um, affect people around us. And whether we intend to or not, um, you know, we are either loving or failing to love our brothers and sisters. That is for us at IPC, the moral connection to what we believe as spiritual people and what we feel we are put on this earth to do and why we do what we do in terms of caring for the earth, because it is a manifestation of love for one another. And that, you know, I think resonates with even non-religious people, but it certainly is a theme that is present in you know all spiritual beliefs. This this calling to love one another and to take care of each other. Looking at in sort of more practical, concrete terms, why is it that religious institutions uh, are particularly well suited to move the ball forward on this kind of thing? What advantages do churches and and synagogues and places of worship you know bring to this problem? Yeah, so they bring a lot of potential, they also bring some of the problems. So let's talk with the problem first. Um, they own vast amounts of land and a lot of it is impervious. Uh, huge parking lots, big roofs. And you know that generates, as your listeners obviously know, lots of stormwater pollution. So there's tremendous opportunities you know, to really reduce the amount of nutrients that are being loaded into you know, the Chesapeake Bay where we work. But of course that that doesn't matter where you live. That's a, you know, that's an issue across the country right now. In terms of, you know, other potential though, the positive side of that is here we have this opportunity to invest in a single property and yet raise awareness and change people's thinking and behaviors, you know, hundredfold, right? Because even the smallest church has a hundred or 200 people worshiping there. And then you have some churches where there's thousands of people. And so by reaching these places of worship and demonstrating this, you know, new behavior we want everybody to adopt, we, you know, we're able to reach so many different people and perhaps frame it in a way that they haven't heard before from the secular environmental community. 
Um, now, don't get me wrong, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the fact that the secular environmental community was working on this for decades and decades. And, you know, the faith community is just kind of coming to this in the last 20 years, you know, but I do think there's an important role for a group like IPC to play in translating that message in ways that really resonate with people who um, make their decisions from a moral perspective and are really motivated for, you know, for religious or moral beliefs. And so we, we definitely are seeing an uptick, I guess, in numbers of congregations trying to take action, you know, as they see other congregations doing it, as, um, you know, as we work out some of the quirks and the barriers that congregations face in taking action, it, it's a movement that's building and there's tremendous potential, you know, in terms of just numbers of congregations in Chesapeake Bay. Well, for example, in Maryland alone, there's about 5,000 congregations. And we've done a little bit of a study and um, I think we're, we estimated basically it's about 19,000 congregations in the Chesapeake Bay watershed. So, you know, that's huge, right? <laughs> we're barely scratching the surface, but that's a lot of, you know, a lot of landowners, millions and millions of people who are influenced by what their spiritual leaders are saying. What they're saying and what they're actually doing, like when you come to church and you can see some of these projects, rain gardens, and like that's that's a whole different experience with it, as, as you said. Can you give us some examples of some projects that groups have taken on that have been particularly innovative or, or impactful that have really made a difference? Sure. There's so many. I'm going to highlight two, but, you know, I'm sure I'm going to miss some really important ones that people are going to be upset about. But uh, there is a church in uh, Eastport outside of Annapolis, St. Luke's uh, Episcopal Church. I think it was a one and a half million dollar project where they daylighted a stream uh, that basically then resulted in the you know, treatment of, I don't know how many acres, I, I don't remember the statistics, the staff probably would, but you know, a bunch of uh, developments upstream of their church, um, they are right on a river there. And so they ended up daylighting this stream and, and installing tons of rain gardens. And I think what's really interesting is they did a dye water test. And before they did their project, it took, I think it was four hours for the water to go from the headwaters of what they were trying to affect down to the river. And after the um after the project, it took 10 days for that water to travel. So that just kind of shows you like how they really slowed that down and got it in the ground. And it's, it's an amazing project that is open to the public. Um, they have a beautiful labyrinth there. I mean, it's a very prayerful space, all native species that they've installed. People are invited to go and check it out and walk and reflect and be inspired. Another really fabulous project is in West Baltimore at Still Meadow Community Fellowship. Pastor Michael Martin maybe you've heard of some flooding that we experienced a couple of years ago, West Baltimore got inundated with flooding and some of the neighbors, poor neighbors in that area, just really affected by that. And through that process, he, you know, he began to try to understand why is this happening here and what is causing this. And over the course of lots of conversations with some of our staff and others in the area, like Blue Water Baltimore and U.S. Forest Service, they realized they had this 10 acre parcel of land in West Baltimore that they you know, could steward and really reforest and make the forest healthier to hold more of the water. And he has just become you know, a voice for this kind of work in West Baltimore. Um, and again, that park is just amazing. They're teaching people how to 
you know, how to plant trees, how to care for trees, how to remove dead trees, you know, any day you might walk out there and see Pastor Michael out there with his chainsaw. So it's, um, it's pretty neat, you know, those kinds of projects. There's tons of smaller projects though that I just think are really important. And we might gravitate towards the big ones because they get headlines, but really, I mean, this is, this is not about a handful of really big projects. I mean, if we're gonna really address this, it's everybody doing everything they can in their control. And sometimes that means little projects, little pocket parks and, and restoring native habitat and expanding tree pits in the street in front of your church just to get a little bit more water in the ground and a little bit more canopy for that tree. And there's just hundreds of that kind of thing going on that, you know, I don't want to just focus on a couple big ones because everybody's doing, everybody's doing really important stuff. And that's all we're called to do, right? I mean, that is faith. You know, you're called to do what you're, what you think is your part in this puzzle and you have to have faith that grace and God takes care of the rest. And, you know, that's, but if we don't even do what our part is, you know, shame on us. I'm interested in like what kinds of challenges uh, some of these efforts might Face. I mean, I would imagine a lot of them are just the same ones that any kind of project would run into funding and politics and red tape. But I, like within congregations, is there a, a potential for, you know, tensions to arise, uh, division over, I don't know how, po how political it gets within these faith communities? Sure. I mean, faith communities are humans and humans have different opinions. And that is always space that takes a lot of care and intention and patience to navigate. And um, we actually have a green team training program that we talk a bit about those interior, you know, internal power struggles and how do you begin to navigate that. And, um, and it's not about going to the people that disagree with you right off the bat and, and having, you know, a contentious conversation. It's about um, understanding where the energy is in your community. Um, who are the kindred spirits? You know, go outside in the parking lot and look for the bumper stickers that say coexist and whatever, right? And find those people. Stand by the recycling bin and see who's recycling. Find your people in your community and work as a team and begin to change thinking in a patient and loving way some might argue we don't have time for that. You know, I understand that. And I understand that from frustration. I just don't know that that really lends itself to long-term change um, that people own, even, you know, if they disagree with you and it might be a way to get a short win, but I don't think it's the way to get long wins. And that's what we're trying to you know, work with people is to build those long wins. And you've already kind of started answering my next question, which was, what do you tell people? What advice do you give to somebody who's thinking, I would like to get something like this going in my congregation? What are the first steps? Yeah, I mean, I do think find out the appetite a little bit. You know, maybe they already know their spiritual leader would support that. And if that's the case, you don't need to, you know, tiptoe around it. Start having those conversations. If not, you know, we encourage people to start with something called green team training. It's something we offer for free. We have one coming up. Uh, we will be offering it in 2022 um, in February and October, and it's all virtual. But we do encourage you to come to the training with at least two other people um, because there is no team of one. <laughs> and from there, you know, it really begins to kind of set the stage of, you know, how do you 
what are some of the, the things that you do to address any kind of struggle or you know, internal turmoil that you might be facing at your institution? Get some ideas started. How do you communicate these ideas to others? You know, some of the soft skills. Another place to start is we offer a learning lab every Thursday night. And it's a deep dive. Again, it's by Zoom. Um, it's a deep dive into certain topics. And so if you're just trying to hear what are other congregations doing, maybe it'll spark some ideas. Um, every learning lab, we showcase at least one congregation that has done the thing that we're going to talk about in that learning lab. So, you know, you can kind of get a sense for what, what are the small, the big, and everything in between kinds of things that congregations are doing. And then, of course, we're, you know, we're here to chat and, and talk and maybe introduce you to congregations in your area that have already done something similar. Yeah, I mean, you could really see how, how this could be a great tool for community building within a congregation and getting more people engaged. I wonder if, it, if that extends beyond the boundaries of the religious community itself. Like, are you, it's interfaith, right? Are you seeing connections form across religious traditions? Yeah, absolutely. So there's a couple of fun examples of that. So we have, we, we kind of organize in a hub, right? Um, meaning, you know, we have a couple geographical areas within Maryland where we are building hubs. And one of those is in the Baltimore area. And there was an event not long ago where there was an Episcopal, Lutheran, and a um, Presbyterian church that all came together and, and had a speaker series and co-shared and co-advertised that speaker series. Um, even though it was always hosted at one location, you know, they all worked um, together. So there is some shared capacity in that way. Um, you know, there's other activities that are emerging a lot in that regard. So we do see that, you know, I think it's really when we have events, and of course now a lot of them are on Zoom, but, you know, when we have other um speakers from, you know, other, from diverse religions, maybe Buddhists and, um, you know, other non-Christian groups. And you just, there's this sense of awe and curiosity and just, you know, people are excited to learn about other people and what drives them and, you know, how it relates to their own beliefs, how it's similar, how it's different. I really wish we can get past this pandemic so we can start being in person and having so much more of that. But that is definitely, we, we know people are craving that. And you know, we try to do as much as we can to create space you know, for that exchange because it's so positive and so hopeful and something that people just really need right now. Well, I, I wish you all the luck in the world with that. It's, it's really exciting. And I really appreciate you taking the time to talk about it today. Thanks for being on Pennsylvania Legacies. Thank you. I really appreciate it, John. Jody Rose is Executive Director of Interfaith Partners for the Chesapeake. Learn more about their Green Team's training and other programs at interfaithchesapeake.org. We will, of course, include a link in the show notes. There you can also view recordings of last fall's webinars focusing on faith-based watershed initiatives underway in Pennsylvania. That's all on the PEC website, PECPA.org, P-E-C-P-A.org. All of our past podcast episodes live there, along with lots more content on the work that PEC does in watersheds, energy and climate, trails and outdoor recreation, public lands, communities and landscapes, and much more, all again at PECPA.org. You can follow us on Twitter at PECPA. Our policy outfit has its own Twitter feed. That's at PEC Policy. And we're on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn as well. Wherever you encounter us, please say hi. We'd love to hear your feedback on the show and on what PEC does. 
We'll have another episode of Pennsylvania Legacies in about two weeks' time. Until then, for the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, I'm Josh Rollerson, and thanks for listening. Thank you.